Uh, that's where we're hanging out uh, this morning, Genesis chapter 15. It's fitting, I was thinking about this this week as we start summer. I was thinking back to the summer of 2001. I'm pretty sure most of you were all born by then. Uh, but the summer of 2001 uh, was a summer where I had just turned 18. You can do the math. There you go. Um, but uh, it was the summertime, and me and a bunch of my friends um, went out camping on a lake and boating, particularly, uh, at this lake called Gates of the Mountains, right outside of my, my hometown I grew up in, in, in Montana. And it was a really cool lake because it uh, doesn't really look like a lake. It just like, looks like a really wide river, and it's a great place to go boating and tubing and all these things, and we went camping. And like a lot of 18-year-old boys uh, think, great, sometimes things are a good idea and they're really not. Uh, the sun set, became really dark, we got really bored, and we're like, hey, let's go boating right? It's pitch blackout, can't see a single thing. We all hop in the boat. Most of us did. One guy gets in the tube. Guy was an idiot, right? And uh, we start, we take off. And we don't get very far. And we realize we can't see anything. Like, we literally could not see, like, next to our boat. We were like, I don't, I mean, this is not a wide lake at all. I'm like, we might hit the shore for all I know. We have a friend back there in a tube if he falls out, we're not going to find him. And all of a sudden, like this fear set in, and we had no idea where we were. Luckily, two of our friends stayed back, and we had this blazing fire going. And so even though we were pretty far away from our camp at this point, we had no idea which direction we were to go. We could see our fire, and we knew if we just head slowly in that direction, we would get safely to shore. I think that story of my summer experience perfectly reflects in many ways what it's like to follow Jesus. We so often have just extraordinary faith, and we set out in our lives, and all of a sudden it gets really dark. We get disoriented with our doubt. We have faith in moments, and then all of a sudden doubt creeps in, and when doubt creeps into our lives, it's really disorienting, is it? And we're like, I just need to know how to get back to shore, Where's the shore? I'm here to tell you this morning that Genesis chapter 15 is that blazing fire on the shore. It guides you back home in the midst of your doubts. Because if we're being honest, if we're just being really honest, we all struggle with doubt. We all do. And so Genesis 15, I hope this morning, will be that blazing fire for you and me. So if you would, let's all stand together. Let's read this. The whole thing. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, 
a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a great old age, or good old age, didn't mean to exaggerate that. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You guys, Corvallisites, can sit down. There you go. This morning, guys, uh, when we look at Genesis chapter 15, um, we see a few main characters here. Uh, We see a doubting man. We see a gracious God. And we actually see you. We see a doubting man, we see a gracious God, and we see you. And that's gonna be our outline. Verses one through eight is a doubting man. Verses nine to the end is a gracious God. And then we're just gonna go, well, why does this matter for your life? Because you're in it. So first, a doubting man. Verse one reads, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Guys, this is so important because this is the only place in the entire Pentateuch which is the first uh, five books in your Bible, is the only time in the first five books of the Bible where we are told that the word of the Lord came to anybody. That phrase just doesn't appear except for here, and that phrase is really important because whenever that phrase pops up in in your Bible, it's signifying that this person is a prophet. That's what that phrase means, that God is manifesting himself. He's speaking to somebody in such a clear Uh, basically audible, extremely uh, strong sort of way. That it's just without a doubt, God is speaking very vividly and clearly to somebody. And what does God say? He says, fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, if you're here last week, you might get a little window into why God would show up and say, uh, fear not, because we see here that in the previous chapter, Abraham goes in and he rescues his nephew Lot, um, and from all these like crazy tribes and, and armies and powerful nations, and he's just become the wealthiest person on the planet. But then when he finds out that God is the one who delivered him uh, and he worships God, he begins to give all that wealth away. And so here Abraham uh, is now basically probably terrified that people are going to retaliate, but he also just gave up all of his wealth. And so God shows up very powerfully and clearly and with a strong statement. He says, fear not. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham, what does he say in response? He goes, whew, thanks God, you just gave me some great lyrics to a new worship song. I'm gonna go, you know, write out some chords for that. We're gonna sing it as a family. It's gonna be awesome. Thank you, that's what I needed. That helps me so much, right? That's what it says, right? That's what it sounds like. Not at all, is it? 
actually in spite of how clear and how strong Abraham's statement is, he immediately responds with what? God, I'm still scared. He said, um, you said that you were going to do this, fill in the blank, and I don't see that thing filled in the blank. God, you said, um, speaking of reward, remember that child that you promised to me? Uh, where is he? Let me ask you, what do you call all this? You call it doubt, right? That's what you call it. You call it doubt. But guys, this is not a minor question that Abraham is asking. Like, you must see this. This is not minor at all, because what Abraham is saying in his questions to God is this. He's saying, God, I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure about you. I have doubts about you. Well, what does God do? What does God say? How does he respond? Well, he makes a promise again to him, but he then takes him outside and he shows him the stars and he says, basically, basically as multitudinous as these stars are that you see in the sky, that's how many your offspring should be. So if you can count them, then that's how many you'll have, but obviously everyone won't be able to count them. Which if you read your New Testament, those stars are representative of you, if you know Jesus. And so he gives Abraham this visual he makes Abraham a promise. What was Abraham's problem originally? His problem was that he made a promise by, uh, he was made a promise by God to have offspring. And he's looking around and he's saying, I don't see any offspring. He sees nothing. So God takes him outside. He says, even though you can't see your offspring, I want you to see something. I want to give you a visual, the stars. And then afterwards, this famous verse that is used by the Apostle Paul to show us this morning how you and I are actually saved, pops up in verse six. And what does it say? It says, after he's shown these stars, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So just as an aside really quick, people can often ask, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, they're actually saved the same way that people on the other side of the New Testament are saved. It's through faith in the Messiah. It's through believing in God. It's still through faith. It was never through works. It was believing that God would send a Messiah to save the world and putting your hope in that Messiah. We, on the other hand, look backwards. People like Abraham were looking forwards, okay? So as we see here in verse six, so Abraham, he's doing well, right? His doubts seem to be dissipated. Way to go, Abraham. All he needed to see was some stars, right? That's all, that's all it needed. We're on track here. But then what happens? Verse 7, doubts creep back in again, don't they? But not exactly the same kind of doubts at all, to be clear. God is reminding him of a promise that he's going to give him land. He says, I am the Lord. I brought you out of the land to give you this land to possess. And what does Abraham say? Of course. No. He says, how will I know that I will possess it? You can't miss this. This is actually really important right here, the way that he says this. Because he doesn't say like the first doubt, because God, he says, you said you would give me a son. You would give me an offspring. You haven't given it to me. Here he says, I will give you land. And he doesn't say, you haven't given it to me. He goes, how will I possess it? How, how will I know that I will possess this land? The first doubt was about what God was gonna do. This doubt is about what he could do. 
He says, how will I know that I will do this? The language shift is so important because it reveals not only that Abraham has doubts about God, but Abraham has doubts about himself. That's what this is saying to you. He's saying, I have doubts about me. The first question is about God. This question is about him. Do you see, Abraham is doubting two things. And honestly, guys, these two aspects, these two components form the basis of every single one of our doubts. The first is, God, how can I trust you? It's been a couple of decades. Um, Are you really going to keep your word? And the second basis is, God, how can I trust me? I've proven to be pretty unreliable. I don't always follow through what I've even said I wanted to do. I don't even know if that's what I want to do. What if I screw it up? Guys, in these eight verses, you see the applause of Abraham's faith and you see the questions of his doubts and we learn something so critical in the process. We learn that God is open to doubts. We learn that God is open to doubts. Do you see this? The God of the universe, when Abraham questions him saying, I have doubts about you, he doesn't say, how dare you question me, you little thing, right? He doesn't say that to Abraham, does he? God is patient with doubters, but he doesn't let you stay in your doubts. We have a very famous story of this even in the New Testament, right? When uh, Jesus had died on the cross and then rose from the dead, all of Jesus' disciples had seen Jesus physically after he had died, except for one man, that was Thomas, who was a follower. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection unless I can see Jesus with my own eyes. And so Jesus famously appears to Thomas and he says, go ahead, touch my side, the hands of my, you know, the the holes in my hands, right? He said, now you see, blessed are those who do not see and yet still believe. See, even with Thomas, right, we see in the New Testament that Jesus um, still is, is, is okay with his doubting. He doesn't want him to stay in that doubting. And in a sense, we're all like Thomas in some sense because doubting is basically just an absence of seeing. That's where the basis of Abraham's doubts are are creeping in here. Jesus is saying to Thomas, look, stop doubting. God in general, guys, he is gentle with doubters. He doesn't let you nor want you to stay there though. And so I, I don't know about you, maybe you come from a place in your life, maybe you grew up in the church or maybe you didn't grow up in the church but you come from a culture or a place where you were just, you weren't allowed to doubt where you can't question anything at all. It was basically perceived as a sin. You just don't do it. If you have doubts, keep them to yourself. And I'm just here to tell you that churches that are, where where it's unsafe to doubt, those churches always create skeptics. If you're from a church where it was not safe to doubt, you'll find those churches just create a bunch of skeptics over time. On the other hand, though, guys, we live in Corvallis or um, cities like Portland, potentially, if you're there from there or here today visiting or going to go there someday. We live in these secular, sophisticated cultures like Corvallis and Portland, and these cultures that we live in basically say that anyone who has any certainty about faith at all is seen as sort of this very naive and shallow thinker who sort of left their brains at the door when it comes to the process of faith. It's basically considered sophisticated to be a doubter. It's considered the ultimate virtue to be skeptical about everything because who can really know whatever there is to know about God and faith? 
So, so we have these modern cultures that uphold doubt as a virtue. We have these ch traditional churches, potentially, that you might have come from that uphold doubt as essentially a sin. And then in Genesis 15, you guys, we have God. We have God. He's gentle with those who doubt, but he's never accepting that this is the place that you're intended to live forever. So I mean, for me, honestly, you, you can know which culture you come from or which view you've been ingrained with upon how you feel uh, when you interact with someone, if they seem really certain, or if you interact with someone and they begin to ask questions and you begin to squirm, you'll know which culture you're coming from. So if someone begins to ask probing questions about their faith and you squirm and you feel the need to just reach in and control everything, then you could be certain that to some degree you've come from a culture that thinks doubting is just the worst thing in the, in the entire world. But if you're talking with someone about faith and they have such certainty about their faith in some degree and that just really puts you off or you become skeptical about them and you question if their faith is even real at all, then you probably are, are more ingrained in a secular type of culture. But guys, we see this balance here in God. And so therefore, uh, we should desire to see this balance in us. And it's exactly because we see this in God that we desire to be a church that seeks that balance as well. Where, where we don't exalt skepticism, but we also don't exalt certainty to the point where any sort of doubting is a sin. And so how, how does God answer Abraham? How, how does God answer him in the midst of his doubts? Abraham's saying, I don't know about you, and I don't know about me. So how does God answer? Look in, look in verse nine. All right, what does God begin to say down in verse nine? He says in verse 9, bring me a heifer, which is a cow, if you didn't know, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's all God says. Bring me some animals, basically. It's kind of an interesting response. Okay? And then what does Abraham do in verse 10? It says, and Abraham brought him all these. Then he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So, guys, God says, bring me some animals. Abraham brings him animals, and he just starts cutting them in half. And what he does, he does this except for the birds, assumingly because they're too small, okay? And he cuts them each in half, and he puts them on these opposite sides, creating this walkway that people would walk through that was like a pool of, of blood, basically, okay? Either side of the pathway, making this, this river of blood in the middle. And so if you're reading this and you understand what's happening here, you're probably going like, what in the heck is happening? This is really odd and strange, and I'm not going to lie. If, if I had to start cutting up animals, I don't know if I'd do a good job. I don't even know if I could do it, to be honest with you. Not very manly, apparently. But nonetheless, this is what Abraham does. He just starts cutting up animals and putting them in separate sides, and blood's flowing in the middle of this river walkway thing, okay? Uh, but then just, just look, though. Consider what's happening in this exchange, God says, bring me animals, and Abraham just knew what God meant. He doesn't just bring him animals and say, what do I do with them? He knows what is supposed to happen with these animals. See, people in this day and age, they were very familiar with it. It doesn't even need to be explained here in this passage. God doesn't have to lay it all out. Abraham is familiar with it. God is familiar with it. Abraham knows what God's calling him to do. But you and I don't really know what is happening. So what's going on here? What's happening here is they're about to make a covenant. They're about to make a covenant. They're basically creating a contract here. The Hebrew word covenant literally means to cut. That's what it means. And now 
this is hard for us to understand. This seems pretty gruesome because we live in a written age, not an oral culture. And so when we want a guarantee, right, we ask for a written contract from somebody else. So if a contractor shows up to your house and, and you need some work done on your house or whatnot, just a, if you have a house in vision, you have a house someday, right? It's your dream, I'm sure, right? So you have, you have a house someday, a contractor comes, he says, I will do this work, and you have him write it down and give you a price. Why? Because you don't want him coming back and saying, you know what, I decided I'm going to charge you this much. You say, no, I'm sorry, I have it in writing. You said you were going to do it for this price, right? We, we understand this is how this works in this, this day and age, in our culture. So in written cultures, we create contracts because we look at each other and we say what? We say, I have doubts about you. So we say, that's why we create these contracts. So you sign a paper that has these stipulations listed out, and, and we know that in our society, that that's how society sort of holds us accountable to what we're saved that we're actually going to do, and that's how contracts are made. Uh, that's not how they were made in oral cultures, though, not at all, like in the ancient Near East. So how did you do it? We actually acted, right? Got any thespians in the room? Right? We're in the Majestic. This is a good place for this chapter, apparently, right? You acted. You kind of do this drama, you do this physical action, and what you do instead of signing on a piece of paper is you act out the consequences for not upholding your end of the bargain. The, the consequences of breaking your vows are acted out. Uh, you're, you're acting out basically the curses of the covenant is basically what's happening here. So how did this work? Well, in that day, instead of signing a, a contract, they would cut open animals like Abraham's doing, and they would walk down that river of blood, and so they would like splash up onto their robes. And basically, when this is happening, they're saying to one another, they're saying, if I don't uphold my end of the deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I die. That's pretty intense, right? It's a lot more than just sign your name. Imagine if you did this with your contractor, right? They show up with a new price, you're like, dude, I got the bloody robe. What do you want me to do, right? I mean, this is pretty intense, okay? This would be pretty effective, maybe. So as someone passes through the pieces, this is what they're saying. They're saying, may it be done to me what was being done to these animals if I don't uphold by the end of the covenant. May I be ripped apart. May I die. But guys, here is the crazy thing, okay? Because this happened all the time. But when a king ever entered a covenant with, with servants or people they just conquered, this would always happen. But it was only the servant who would ever walk through. I was the only person who would ever walk through those animals because it was already considered an honor to the servant to even be in the kingdom, so to speak. So in other words, this would have been Abraham's understanding going into the situation. God says, go get some animals. And he's like, all right, I'm going to start making some vows. I'm going to start making a covenant. This would have been what he thought. He thought that he was going to be asked to walk between the pieces and take a vow. He was going to essentially say to God, I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I will do this, God, which would have been completely out of place in our story, wouldn't it? How, that wouldn't have helped Abraham at all, because why? Abraham is saying, I have doubts about you, and I have doubts about myself, and so he's thinking here that he's going to walk through and make all these promises that he's not even sure he can keep, and he doesn't even know if God's good for it. But then what happens? That's not what happened, is it? Because what happens next? What happens is one of the most, honestly, dramatic and powerful scenes in the entire Bible. What you get here is what we call a theophany. 
It's a theophany. A theophany is when God manifests himself on the earth in some physical and palpable way. It's like a visual way that represents God. And so what happens here? Well, look with me down in verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So the sun goes down. He doesn't just get sleepy. The phrase literally means he experiences a darkness of terror. A terror falls on him. A spiritual darkness came upon him that mirrored the physical darkness of the sun setting around him. And then what happens? God speaks. God speaks in this moment. In verses 13 through 16, God doesn't just begin to promise him offspring again, which is what Abraham's questioning, he actually begins to give details about what's going to happen to his offspring. But then in verse 18, God speaks to him again, and he tells Abraham not just that he's going to give him land, but he gives him exact details about the land. So these two things that Abraham's questioning and doubting, God is answering those things with details, but quite honestly, guys, that, that's not the guarantee. He's not just giving him more promises, saying, I'll give you a few more details to appease your conscience. That's not at all what's happening here. The important aspect of this story is not that, because Abraham has doubts, and God doesn't just give him answers to his questions. Abraham doubts, and God doesn't just give him details. Abraham doubts himself, and he thinks that he's going to be asked to walk through the pieces and make vows. But what we see here is so powerful because in response to Abraham's questions and doubts, God doesn't just speak and make promises. God gives a guarantee, an absolute guarantee. And we see this in what happens when God finishes speaking in verse 17. It says, the sun is now gone, which something then appears and passes through the pieces. Well, what is it? Verse 17. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is weird, right? These words are hard to translate. It says a smoking fire pot, okay? It's a flaming torch. It could also be translated a you know, billowing smoke or bright lightning, Guys, these two words are the exact two words that appear when God descends on Mount Sinai. It's like the same exact scene after the Exodus, which means that these are physical manifestations. This is a theophany of God's presence or a representative image of God. So what's happening here is God isn't just reiterating his promises to Abraham. He isn't just saying, Abraham, I'll give you offspring. I will make your name great. I will give you land. He's not just reiterating that. God is guaranteeing it, and he's guaranteeing it by passing through the pieces himself. He's saying, if I don't do everything, Abraham, that I told you I would do, may I be torn to pieces like these animals. May I die. He's saying, Abraham, if, if I don't bless you, if I don't keep my word, may my immortality become mortality. May my immutability become mutable. Would the impossible become possible? May I die. May I be cut off. Cut off. That's covenant language, right? Abraham, if I don't bless you, may I be cut off. I will be cut off, Abraham, if I don't bless you. That's what he's saying to Abraham. Like, isn't this amazing? Think about this. Isn't this seriously amazing? Not like in the way that I use the word amazing. I say everything's amazing. But like the true definition of the word amazing. Like, isn't this amazing? 
But I want you to see that as astonishing as this is, as amazing as this is, that's not all that happened because God passes between the pieces, but then look at what it says in verse 18. What does it say? It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Boom, that's it. It's done. Covenant's over. Right? It's finished. So what's amazing is that God walks through the pieces, but what's even more amazing is who doesn't walk between the pieces. It's, it's who doesn't give an oath. It's who doesn't do a single thing. Well, who doesn't? It's, it's Abraham. Why, why is that amazing that Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces? Because God is saying that not only is he, God, accountable if he doesn't uphold his end of the deal, but God has said through his actions by not letting Abraham walk through that he will be faithful even if Abraham doesn't uphold his end of the covenant. And so if Abraham fails, then God is saying, then I still will be torn to pieces. The the, the meaning of this is so clear, you guys. This is setting up the entire Bible. If God fails to keep up his side of the bargain, he will pay with his own blood. That's what he says. But if Abraham fails to keep up his side of the bargain, God is saying, I will also pay with my own blood if you fail. I I just want you to think about this. God makes himself responsible for both sides of this covenant. He says, I I will pay the penalty if I don't keep up my end, and I'll pay the price if you don't either. Abraham must have been just, like, jaw-droppingly astonished at this. Guys, this is an unconditional grace covenant. How in the world could this be? Abraham must not have even known how this could have even have been or how it would happen, but you and I know we know how, because how God could do this, how he could promise this to us. How, how, how has this worked? Well, this will be on the screen. Mark, Mark 15, 33 says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is a scene here in the Gospel of Mark that's telling you about how Jesus took a cross up a hill called Calvary And when he hung on the cross, darkness descended in the middle of the day. So when Jesus went to the cross, darkness came down again, the darkness of terror and dread. And then the next slide, Isaiah 53, 8 says what about Jesus on the cross? It says Jesus was what? Cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? He was cut off. It's covenant language, isn't it? Covenant language of the just punishment for not upholding your end of the covenant, but, but, but Jesus, guys, he was the only person who actually ever upheld his end of the deal. Like, he did it perfectly. And he's the one who is actually being cut off. Do you see what's happening here? God is upholding his end of the deal, and he's upholding Abraham's end of the deal. He's upholding your end of the deal. Immortality is becoming mortality. Immutability was becoming mutable. The impossible was becoming possible. The eternal son of God, Jesus, was cut off and his blood flowed from his side like a river. Was God's son dying because he hadn't kept up his end of the deal? Well, not at all. He was dying because you haven't kept up yours. See, Jesus experienced all of this. Why? So that he could bless you even when you fail him so that your salvation could be an absolute, unconditional kind of salvation, so that you would be guaranteed forgiveness, guaranteed salvation, a future, even when you don't deserve it, so that you could be saved, guys, by extravagant grace, not by some miserable scorecard that you're trying to keep up with. See, only God walks through the pieces. 
This was the expensive and extravagant cost of this grace covenant. We talk about the epitome of a one-sided deal. God does it all, and then one side gets all the blessing. But through it all, you guys, one side gets all the glory. Because what does this do? Doesn't it just like blow your mind about the grace of God? I mean, are you serious? Well, what about you? Because technically you're in the stars. Not really, you're not like an astronaut, but you're in the, when God's pointing Abraham's eyes, that's pointing to you, the New Testament tells you. You're here, what difference does it even make to your lives? It's just cool, just help me understand the Bible better. No, you're here too. There's a few things I just want to draw out of this quickly of how this, this changes our lives, like dramatically, okay? One is a, a worldview change. One's a communal change, and I have two personal ones. First is the worldview one. Guys, um, let me tell you, there is no other religion or belief system in the world that is saying this. I'm not being pompous, it's just true. So please do not say, like everybody else in our culture, well, all religions are basically the same thing, right? right? We just ought to love one another, and if we love one another right, then God will bless us. No, not at all. Like, just, you need to stop saying that if you're saying that, okay? Because this couldn't be further from the truth. Like, nothing in the world is saying this about God, right? This isn't anything that comes close to this. There's no other faith that says it doesn't matter how much of a failure you are. But if you enter into a covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ, it's by sheer and utter grace. You didn't have to walk between the pieces. God took it on himself. Guys, Christianity is, is a grace religion. It's a grace faith. Christianity doesn't say, do this and God will bless you. It says, God did this, therefore you could be blessed. Right? Every, every other religion says, here's how you find God. Christianity says, here's how God came to find you. Every other religion says, here's some really good advice on how to live. Christianity says, here's some really good news about how Jesus lived for you. It's completely and utterly different. It's not just good advice, it's good news. It'll change your worldview. And that's the two things we're gonna see here next. Second thing is a personal one. Uh, guys, this is an anchor for your soul during seasons of doubt. This is an anchor for your soul during seasons of your doubt. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone deep sea fishing before, or if you've ever been in a boat. If you haven't, you have to at some point. I recommend it, I guess. Maybe you'll understand this better. I went deep sea fishing one time. I just threw up the whole day, basically. It wasn't even that bad out there, it was, but the boat just rocks the whole time, right? And even the second day we went out, it was like intense. The waves were really really big. And so when you go deep sea fishing, you have to lower an anchor. If not, you'll just drift. You'll drift away from where the fish are, or you, you don't know where you're going to end up, basically, right, from all the currents in the ocean. So you have to lower an anchor if you're going to stay where you need to stay, even in the midst of all the waves and all the chaos around you. Right? And this is exactly the illustration that Hebrews 6 pulls out for us. It'll be on the screen. In Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews is actually talking about Genesis 15, and this is what he says. He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast 
anchor of the soul. What's he talking about? What's the anchor? It's God swearing by himself. Just verbally? No. He's referring to God walking through the pieces. He says that's an anchor for your soul. You you see, Hebrews says everyone needs an anchor. We all need that fire on the shore, or else we don't know where to go. Well, what's the anchor of your soul this morning? In other words, when, when doubt sets in, when at one point it felt like the brightest day of your life, and now you're just like, I don't know which direction's which. When darkness comes in, when the, when the waves get really big, what do you lower your anchor into? Is, is what you try to lower it into even accessible to you at that point? But what do you try to grab a hold of or anchor into that would give you security? Is it even accessible? Is that thing strong enough to never go away? Or is that thing you anchor down into temporary? Does it just come and go? Is it easily ripped away? Is it a real guarantee for your life? You see, if God and his grace and the performance of Jesus is where you anchor your soul, guys, then then nothing will move you even in the midst of your doubts. Nothing will move you. Even when your eyes can't see the next step or you can't see the promises of God come into view, we are given the smoking fire pot, right? We're given the flaming torch. We are given the Jesus on the cross. That's what we're given. And if God will give me Jesus on the cross, then I can anchor myself while I struggle through my questions because I know at least one thing, and that is this, that Jesus walked through the pieces. I know that. I know I have God, even in the midst of my failure. Which leads me to the third thing, how this changes your life. This means, guys, that failure won't crush you, but it'll actually drive you to adore Jesus. Your failure won't crush you, but it'll drive you to adore Jesus. See, in the cross, we see God will always keep up his end of the bargain, and he will always make up for where you mess up. He always keeps up his end of the deal, and he will always make up for where you mess up. I mean, just think about how comforting this is. Just think about this. God's commitment to my family is greater than mine. I mean, where I mess up, he stays committed. God's commitment to this church is greater than mine. When when I mess up, he stays faithful. His commitment to my growth in Christ-likeness is greater than mine. His commitment to guide me is greater than mine. His commitment to seek out what's best for me is way greater than mine. His commitment to my joy is greater than mine. His commitment to the world is way greater than mine. I could go on and on. Here's what this means, guys. No matter where you are, no matter how badly you've stumbled, you can get up this morning and you can go forward in faith because God's commitment to you has never waned. I mean, Abraham, we're told in Genesis, fell like five times, like in horrific ways, and we're certain, we're very certain that he fell way more than that. But each time the voice of God is clear because of Genesis 15, I will uphold your end of the deal. I'm still going to bless you, Abraham. Get up and follow me. And I know, I know some of you in this room have messed up very badly. But get up this morning and go to Jesus. Don't wallow in your failure, but anchor your soul to his success. God hasn't, nor will he ever give up on you. And he proved that when Jesus walked through the pieces. 
So did you mess up in your marriage? Did you fall back into pornography? Did you make a terrible judgment call? Did you blow up at your kids again? Did you ignore God for another whole week amongst like a string of 10 weeks? Or did you bulldoze somebody to get what you want? However great it feels or how minimal it fear feels, get up. He upheld your end of the deal so that we can know that he'll never give up on you. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at shaking hands. I tell this to like all of you, and it stinks because I have to shake a lot of hands in my life, okay? But what happens is I go up and I shake your hand and I don't look at your hand, I look at you, and I end up grabbing your fingers or I miss completely. I'm just... You know how they tell you you have to have a good handshake? Not that guy, okay? Just terrible at shaking hands is very obvious. And I've forever wished I could just own like the, um, like the, the muscle man handshake, you know, where you just like grab the wrists, you know? You do that? Like no one does that for good reasons, okay? But, um, but uh, nonetheless, I wish we could do that because that would just be a lot more of a firm handshake. This is probably why I hug more because it's harder to screw that up, Okay. Um, but nonetheless, I'm really bad at, at shaking hands. And I think, though, that uh, the image of the muscle man handshake is like the perfect picture of Genesis 15, okay? Because when you think about it, God has shaken hands with us like this. And no matter how much you fail, no matter how much you doubt, what happens? That's you letting go, right? That's you letting go and doubting, and failing. And oftentimes in those moments, we think God has let go, but Genesis 15 is telling you God never lets go. He still has you. He's still holding on. So when you fail, when you doubt, you just get to latch on. You go to Jesus and you adore him. It's like when I walk through a parking lot with my kids, I'm gonna hold their hands, because I don't want them to like die, right? And so even when my seven-year-old daughter thinks she's big enough now, I go, no, you're going to hold my hand. I don't care if her hand breaks, honestly, okay? She's going to hold my hand no matter how much she wants to get out of it. Why? Because I care for her, and no matter how much she wants to let go, I'm going to hold on. That's Genesis 15. It's God holding on, holding on to you even when you doubt, even, even when you fail. His commitment to you is greater than your commitment to yourself, and so when failure comes, guys, this is actually an opportunity to run to Jesus and adore him, not to hide from him. And lastly, this changes the way that you and I will treat each other dramatically. Because if our reality is that God holds on when we let go, then that means we will begin to hold on to others when they let go of us. If our story is that God gives us grace when we don't uphold our end of the deal, then we will give people grace who let us down. If our guarantee in life is that God didn't determine his love for us or faithfulness to us based upon how well we lived up to his expectations and standards, then if people don't meet our expectations and our standards, then we can live unwaveringly in love and faithfulness to them. And this is, this is really hard. I mean, this feels way harder than trying to make water boil on a candle and Canadian winter, right? It's really hard, okay? That was the hardest thing I could think of. Um, there you go. But when you anchor yourself to the guarantee of God's grip on your life, his grace towards you, you will treat others differently. To give you a word picture, if you jump into a pool with your clothes on and you jump out and you give somebody a hug, they're gonna get wet, right? 
If you're swimming in the pool of God's grace every day and you're around people, they're gonna get wet. It's the most natural thing in the world. So if this is how God is towards us and my life is swimming in his grace, that's gonna change me and it's gonna change us as a community. You guys, God doesn't just have answers to your doubts. He doesn't just give you a theophany. He gives you Jesus. He gives you uh, this communion table this week if you follow him. And this table shows you that Jesus walked through the pieces. That's what we're remembering. And he walked through the pieces saying, I will, I'm, I will hold up my end of the deal. And this table represents that he said, I will hold up yours too. So when you come to the table this morning in response, we come adoring Jesus, realizing that even though I'm maybe doubting and you're letting go this week, he's still holding on to you. So let's pray. God, I sense that we're just scratching the surface of our understanding of your grace towards us. It just seems obvious, God, that uh, when we sing of how you love us, we really have no idea uh, how deeply you do. And God, I'm just so grateful this morning that you upheld our end of the deal. And so I pray that our hearts this morning would just soar with so much affection for Jesus and that it would change uh, us from the inside out, God.